and welcome to the David and Ron Show podcast. Hi, Ron. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Not too bad. Today is daylight saving time. We lost an hour, but we gain an hour of daylight. Absolutely. Do you feel the difference? Not really, outside of the fact that we lost an hour, and I feel like I vaguely recall we recorded an episode at some point saying we should never record on daylight saving time. And then this morning I realized why. Right. Because I've just had a whole bunch of things, you know, between delays this morning. And then I was telling you before we started recording, I was trying to pull up notes for the show and I wasn't able to access the files. And then my MacBook Air was updating Microsoft Office. So there was a whole bunch of things that caused the delay this morning. And that kind of goes back to why we should never record an episode when we change the clock forward one hour because you lose an hour. Yep. Although I don't recall if we ever tried at the end of daylight saving time whether or not that's a problem when you gain the hour. Yeah. I feel like we've done one before. I want to say we did. Yeah, I think in general, daylight saving time, when it begins, you definitely don't want to right. do anything it's, it's special. It's the loss of the hour, right? When you gain yeah, the it hour, just throws it doesn't off throw your you off as much. Yeah. Now it's just, right. for us, it's like now is the afternoon already, so everything's just all off, really. Yeah, exactly. And just a little PSA, as usually when we have daylight saving time, they tell you to check those smoke detectors and carbon monoxide detectors, test them out, change the batteries if you have. I mean, the one that I have now has a built-in lithium battery. So it's like a 10-year non-replaceable battery. So pretty much when the unit fails, then you just replace the entire unit. But before that, it used to be, I remember years ago, it was a 9-volt battery. And 9-volt batteries are not batteries that you usually keep a lot around. I still, I think, have a 9-volt battery lying around because I have one of those thermometer guns to measure the temperature from the air coming from the air conditioning or heating or whatever. So that uses a 9-volt battery. Outside of that, I don't have anything, I think, that uses 9-volt batteries anymore. And I now, think we've talked about batteries before, you know. like right. Except for a 9-volt battery, most standard, like, AAA, AA, C, and D are the same 1.5 volts, so why do you have different sizes? Right. Now, does that have an indicator when the battery is about to go or you have to do a self-test or does it run its own test? I think that one has a audible alert when the battery is starting to fail. It like chirps? Yeah, I mean, well, the last one that used three AA batteries, that one was probably only six or seven years into its life. And most of these you're supposed to replace after 10 or more years. But again, it depends on where you put them and the different conditions. Like if you have in your kitchen and you have a lot of grease and oil build up then the units aren't going to last very long so it really depends and then if you have like a hardwired one that's well that's different because it's hardwired generally speaking if it's in a place that you can't reach like you have to climb up on a long ladder to get to it a lot of people don't don't test those and they really don't know if they work until it fails like you have to put it in a place in which it's convenient to access but also makes sense so that it actually does what it's supposed to do yeah, I actually have one from Nest. So there's a mobile app that connects to it, which is pretty cool. So that it does run its own test once a week. So right. when it's about to run, it usually alerts me on my phone saying, a test is about to run, you're going to hear it beep. So even if I'm working, I get that alert. and It'll tell me that it's about to happen. I'm like, oh, well, I'm not around. It's okay. But from the work from home thing, it was helpful to tell me what it was. Otherwise, you would sit here wondering, what's that random beep? And what's nice about having that system too is that Again, when you say you can't reach it, mine is up on the ceiling. So if it does go off, I can just use the app and just have it cancel out. 
And at least that's a one quick solution for when it's about to go off. You can just use that and disable it so it doesn't have to do anything more, which is pretty right. cool having it have that type of system. Now, in terms of the Nest ones, like when it does a test, does it give like the full alarm? Like if it was going off or, you it, know, like traditional it's a quick ones? Chirp. Or is it's it... a quick chirp. Okay, like quick it just chirp. does a beep beep. And that's what they call the quick test. They still recommend that twice a year or something, you should just run the full test. So that right. does the full alarm and everything else like that. And then it has like also a, a voice bit to it telling you what's going on. So you, you get multiple ways of testing it, but it does its basic test. Just I think it's once a week or once every other week. However, it's pre-configured. And that just tells you, all right, it's working, it's functional. And what's cool is it actually has this little night light. So it picks up based on motion sensor too. So it's right outside right. where my bedroom is. So as I walk out, that actually gives you an extra light so that you could sort of see your way out. And that's you know, generally, you know, the path to your door. So, you know, it, it has multiple purposes there. So pretty cool. It seems better than a lot of the classic ones. Like I have the kiddo ones and when you test them, they give all the, the full alarms plus they give the audible warnings like right. fire, fire, or carbon monoxide. And it gives those audible warnings, which is good to test the, the full unit, but, you know, it's very loud. It's right. Well, yeah, yeah that, that's the whole some, point of yeah. that, right? It should be that loud, but it does get annoying when you just want to do a quick test and you try to figure out, what do I do? Do I just take it into the bathroom or something? Or someone who is very isolated. What do I do to try to test this without causing a ruckus all over the place? Right, exactly. So it's tax season, and I was kind of going through, you know, some cleanup, and I was digging through, like, 20 years of old returns. And generally, you, like, keep, like, the last seven. And it was kind of funny kind of looking through some of the old ones as I was getting rid of them, going back to the days where you would have to go to, like, the library to pick up tax forms because if you got it in the mail, it would be, like, I think two forms in there. And... The way I used to do it early on 20 years ago was you do it by hand. So you'd first do it in pencil and then you do your final one in black or blue ink in pen. If you had a typewriter, you could always type it, but that was never not necessarily guaranteed to be easier because if you type something wrong, you couldn't use white out. You had to, it had to be clean. So I noticed all these like handwritten versions that I used to have and looking through like all the old tax forms that I had as well. And you see how it transitioned over time from the handwritten to now switching over to tax software and how it's become easier. But also because now there's the requirement for most people to e-file. The recommendation is to e-file, but also for most people, if you're using like tax preparation software or if you're using a tax preparer, you have to e-file. You don't have a choice. You can't send a paper return. The exceptions are like in New York City, you can get a... New York City school tax credit back if you are a resident of New York City, but you don't have to file a full return. And so that you can do a paper return for as well. But I don't think you see too many of the handwritten or the manuals. I don't even know if they accept handwritten tax forms anymore. I'm not too sure. They, uh, I, I would think they should still allow that, right? I don't think everyone's necessarily moved over. I mean, I guess the reasoning is a lot of tax forms are just kind of scanned in now through the system, and then it picks up the the data in there. And that's why they kind of want the e-file, because with the e-file, they can just run their algorithm right. and do the 
analysis so that for the most part, if there are any big red flags, then it, then it'll probably trigger the flags. If it everything looks for the most part fine and it makes sense, then the only reason it need to get flagged is if someone has to manually go and review the return. Right. Because if everyone, if every return had to be manually inspected, then people would not be getting their refunds, especially when it comes to refunds. You would not be getting your refunds for a very, very, very long time. But I think any of the returns, I mean, there, there's, you know, I don't know how the IRS and how the, the state does it in terms of the actual process, but I would have to think that they're not literally sitting there and inspecting every last return, every last line. There must be software and an algorithm that is used to do the, the computations. It's no different than banks when checks are deposited and they have to be cleared. I don't think that in general, you know, if you have large volumes of checks going through that someone is standing there to inspect every last check against, you know, the amount and the, you know, who the recipient is, who deposited the check, the signature match, all that. I don't think they sit there and, and do that. Now, granted, there could be, again, algorithms and software to help match to see if there are any major discrepancies. And there are some banks where, based on volume, they can, if it's like over a certain amount, then it might have to be flagged for a manual review. But I don't think anyone sits there and, sits there and says, okay, here's a $10 check. I need to look at this $10 check. Is the front of the check correctly written? Every last detail. Is the back of the check properly endorsed? Is the endorsement stamp valid? Is the signature valid to match the person who's depositing the check? Do they have an account? And they go through that process. I don't think that with the amount and the volume going through that they would do that for every single last item. It's kind of no different than like factories when they produce products that there is a quality control process, but it's not like we inspect every last item to make sure it's in perfect order before it leaves the factory to go to the stores to be sold or before it goes to customers. Because if that was the case, then every product outside of an issue with the courier, meaning something breaks during transport, that everything that you receive would have to be like 100% perfect. And I don't, I just, you know, it doesn't happen. I don't think that in terms of things that you buy or in terms of things that you've ever gotten, that every single thing was in perfect order. And if it wasn't in perfect order, that it was solely because of the courier, you know, during transport. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You can't really do all that stuff manual these days, but I guess you never know, right, Un- until you actually know what process they follow, but I'm, I'm sure you're, you're right on that one. Right. So last week we had our uh, first in-person indoor dining gathering, and at least for me, you know, at least for me, because I haven't done any sort of, like, indoor dining in over two years. And so it was definitely different. I mean, I think you've done some, I don't know if I have indoor or if you've done indoor and outdoor. Yeah, I've done years. both. But for me, it's like when we saw each other last week, it was the first time that I've done anything indoor. I haven't even done outdoor dining because just with the pandemic, I've just been really playing, playing it safe and being very conservative in terms of going out and about and, and doing things. But I think as things have shown improvement, as conditions have shown improvement, it was kind of nice to be able to go back and do that. And 
you know, I will say that like initially just kind of going in there and when we met last week, the city still had like in terms of indoor dining, you know, the keys to the city rules were yet to show proof of vaccination, et cetera. Although it's kind of interesting as we were sitting there that people were coming in and, and there wasn't really a full application of those rules at that time. But now most of those rules have been lifted in the city, in the state. And so, I mean, definitely, I think the initial experience was you, you are a little bit hesitant at first, and then it kind of eases up a little bit that, you know, once you get to that, that comfort zone. But I think after two years or two plus years in a pandemic, it's not unwarranted to kind of have that feeling. I mean, I know that other states, they don't have the same sort of restrictions. They've been pretty much open territory, so they've been kind of operating business as usual for the most part. Not to say that people of their own choosing don't wear masks or they don't take extra precautions. But the fact is, I think it was definitely different. It was definitely nice to kind of be able to get out for at least a short period of time out of that pandemic protocol and just kind of go back to what it was like pre-pandemic, but at the same time realizing that we are still kind of dealing with, with COVID and, and what's going on around us. Hopefully things are, are looking up and up and continue to improve. Right, it gives you a level of normalcy, right? Not having the mask, sitting in a restaurant, just enjoying the food, the conversation as we have in the past. And that's really all, all it was about, right? Just trying to go back to that normalcy where you don't need all of that. And again, it's different having to walk around with the mask and things like that. And you saw the, the air quality difference there, right? Between wearing the mask and taking it off. So definitely, I hope that that's the direction that we go and it doesn't go backwards because right. it would be a shame if we'd have to go backwards again from where we are now. Right. So hopefully it is for progress. On that note, that kind of leads us to the next thing we want to talk about is we've talked about return to office, return to work. Some companies have continually pushed it off. Some companies have adopted the new hybrid. Some companies continue to have employees work remotely. And we are starting to see that probably, you know, some companies are ready at the beginning of January, but now March, April are starting to set dates for a return. I know that you have, in terms of where you work, there is a kind of hybrid situation there where they have people returning to the office. What has your experience been? And did you feel hesitation initially in the return? And has that feeling changed? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be the hesitation from that first time that you go in. But then as you go in, the comfort level changes, right? Where you initially go in, but it also feels very foreign to you because it's not something you've been doing, right? It's been so long. It's not a few weeks or a few months. It's been a year and a half, almost two years already. So now coming back, it does feel really weird. But I'd probably say after the third or fourth time, just going back in, things did feel back to normal again. It almost felt like it never stopped happening. And it was more of readjusting yourself, right, to your desk because you're so used to what you've set up at home that now you're readjusting to your work desk, how you sit, your chair, your table, the way your computer's set up, the way the accessories set up. And just having the office 
right there or having other people now being able to come to you directly versus talking on Zoom where someone has to message you first. Hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? And then, you know, there might be a whole blank area for which you're going to respond because you may not be looking at that versus where you have that interaction where someone just walks by and says, hey, do you have a few minutes to chat? And Oh, yeah, sure. Let's step over into one of these other sections where we can have a private conversation. So I think there's a lot of benefit to coming back to the office. I mean, would I want to do a full capacity, meaning five days a week? Probably not. I think having this this half hybrid, half, well, this hybrid, which is half work from home, half in the office, is a good start to where this is going, right? And just having those couple days a week where you can have that interaction. And one thing uh, our bosses have said was, you know, don't come into the office if you're going to be on calls all day. Defeats the whole purpose. You should have some blank times in your calendar where you can interact with other people, where you can step away from your desk, where you're not in calls. Otherwise, it's really counterproductive. I mean, if you walk in at 8 o'clock, first thing you're doing is jumping on a Zoom call, maybe have a half an hour, hour lunch, you step out and come back and you're just back on Zoom calls. It's counterproductive at that point. You want to set some time where you can interact. And they have added like uh, lunch breaks where everyone can interact for either an hour or two hours where they just put a block there so that you can step away. You don't have to worry about being on Zoom calls or having to jump on a meeting. So I think a lot of that has just urged people a bit more to come back. I guess you can never say no to free food, right? A lot of people love, hey, we're going to offer some food. Why don't you come back in? Why don't you interact with everyone, socialize while you're eating? So I think all those little bits and pieces have helped to make it a smoother transition to come back to the office. So overall, yeah, I'm doing a couple of days a week now, doing it back-to-back. Initially, I had a, a block in between, let's just say Tuesday and then a Thursday, but it just feels really weird because, you know, Tuesday's in the office, Wednesday you're back at home, Thursday you're back in the office. It just seems hard to try to readjust to the environment. Right. And that just has to do with what your setup is. So I'm doing back to back days right now and seeing how that goes. But that's been working so far because you get enough time to interact with people. People get to see you. People get to talk with you. You have a certain level of interaction that you can't have while remote. But then, you know, once you're, you're back to being remote, you, you can readjust your mind to that environment again until the following week where you're, you're back in the office again. Now, what about your commute? into the office and your return home? Because I know that the times over the last couple of years that I've been on the subway, I've seen that increase from the early days of the pandemic where the only people on board the trains were essential workers and those who, for some reason, you had to go into the office or you had to travel for some reason. And then gradually seeing that increase. So I would say a year ago, the trains were maybe more going from like 5% capacity to maybe in that 20, 20% capacity. And now I think I see it more like, you know, 80% in terms of the train car that I'm in, not right. necessarily what the MTA says in terms of general ridership, but just the train car feels like it's 80% capacity right. versus being at like 5 or 10%. I feel like it's actually more than 80%. To be honest, it feels like it's more like the 85 to 90% range where... It is crowded on the train during rush hour. You do have a lot of people standing next to each other. Maybe, and this is why I say it's like 85 to 90. It's not where you're face-to-face with someone, but it's close enough where it does feel like you're almost at that 100%. 
So what I would say is long gone from the pandemic pandemic days right, are the social the, distancing right could, you know social being distancing like is gone away. clean trains are gone and delays are back right so i can say for the, the couple of days i went in last week going home definitely there were delays on the train and you know it when the train is just running so slow and you're on it and you feel every last bump right. that that the train's making there so there was definitely that but again Clean trains, completely gone. You can see the mess have started again. So definitely that that you get used to. I would probably say by the, the second or third time I went on there, and it, it just gets more crowded each time, where it just fell back to normal. Like, all right, I remember this. Or the people who are rushing, rushing down the stairs to grab that train that's already there. Or the people who are standing there looking for their Metro card because they, they haven't gotten it out. And it just brought back all those memories, and it almost felt like, yeah, this two years never even happened. It almost felt like I was just picking up from where I left off again because exactly. all of that just comes back like, oh, nothing's changed over this amount of time. There are still the people who will run down, run for the trains. And I, I realized to myself, you know, I don't care to run for it anymore. If even the train is right there and I know I, I have like a 10-second threshold, I could run down the stairs. Yeah, I don't care for that. I will just walk down, wait for the next train at this point. It's just not worth it to to run down and grab it and – I think that's what the two years have changed in me, where I used to be that person. I was like, oh, no, let me get to that train. Not that anymore. But, you know, we'll see as time goes on. But definitely, I don't, I think things have changed with me in terms of that. So, you know, whether it's a positive thing or negative, I don't know. But in many, it's not changed. In myself, I have changed a little bit. Right. Yeah, I mean, I remember before the pandemic, usually when I would leave the office that the subway line that I had to take was always super crowded. So I would have to sometimes wait until four or five subways go by before I could get into one that was comfortable. And the reason was, you know, even if you have to get on for a few stops, you don't want to be crammed in like you're in a very tight and closed space. And it's not a claustrophobia issue. It's more of if the train... For some reason, if there was a power outage, if there was some reason where the train got stuck, well, now you're jam-packed with people, and it's just going to be uncomfortable. So I'd rather have a subway car that is more spacious. If I want to be stuck, I'd rather have it with it being more spacious and comfortable than being in a crowded space. Also, you know, if it's a power issue, then the air conditioning is going to go out. And if the air conditioning goes out, again, you don't want to be in there in a hot subway car for hours and not be able to find a way to be comfortable. So that's really the reason that I would avoid getting into the crowded subway cars. And then, of course, I think you had mentioned this a few days ago, and I remember this all the time. If you see a subway car during rush hour, and it's empty or near empty, and every other car is jam-packed, you know there's something wrong with the car. Likewise, in the summertime, when it's really hot outside, if you see one car that's completely empty and every other car filled, it's not because that's a great car to be in. There's something wrong with it, usually because the air conditioning. Probably the air conditioning is really hot and yeah. stuffy. Exactly. And look, I have been in subway cars where even where it's crowded, the air conditioning doesn't work. And at most, I would maybe get on, stay on for like one or two stops. And if it was unbearable, I would just get out because it's it's not worth it. Right. Absolutely. Or sometimes you'll see them... Someone keeps their foot to open the door that's, that allows you to go from car to car just to let air yeah. in. 
But yeah. then it gets very loud in the car then, and it doesn't really bring too much air in, especially if it's a very hot and humid day anyway. It doesn't bring right. much, so it's it's not worth it at that point. You're you're better off standing at the station where you probably catch a breeze here and there and waiting for the next train that has air conditioning than trying to stay on that car and try to stick with it. Right, and it is day and night to be on a subway car that is, you know, even with air conditioning in the middle of summer, if it's really hot and it's fully packed, it's not going to be cool and comfortable in there. So it's going to be a lot better to just wait it out if you can and get onto a car where it's more spacious, where the air conditioning is working, and it's more comfortable. And then even when they have a spacious car with air conditioning running, sometimes with some of the older trains, the air is very humid and damp. And that's like another issue. And then there'll be like this foul stench in the air because I don't know where it comes from, but wherever it comes from, it, it's just an issue. So definitely not looking forward to those days. I mean, the one thing that's nice about the wintertime is that it's usually colder outside, and that means that in the trains, it's going to be semi-comfortable. There are some trains, I think all the trains have heat, but sometimes they crank it up too much, so you don't want that either because that doesn't help. But if you have the right amount of heat, and I remember when I used to get on the train back in my high school days, cold winter's day, you get onto like a, a C train, the old older C trains, and they'd have the heat coming from under the seats, and it was like nice and warm. So that was kind of one of the advantages. But if you get onto some of the other trains, having the heat on really is not helpful. All right, let's move on. Apple held their, I don't know if we would say spring event, because it's not quite spring, but they held a March event last week. And they made a few announcements. Generally speaking, just the overall feel was there wasn't like a super wow, this is something that we're really looking forward to moment. And let me just start by talking about the items that they announced. First, and they've been doing this like every year over the last few years, is they'll announce a new finish on the latest iPhone. So on the iPhone 13, they announced this new green finish. And on the iPhone 13 Pro, a new Alpine green, which looks nice and all. But there's nothing different with the iPhone outside of the finish. And I guess, you know, we're around St. Patrick's Day, so maybe that's what the green represents this year. I forgot what color they announced last year. But, like, each year they've kind of done that over the last few years with a new color at the the first, like, March-April event. And it's fine. I mean, if you haven't gotten an iPhone 13 yet and you're looking for it and you want that green or that alpine green, knock yourself out. So that's the first thing that came out of it. The iPhone SE, which granted has become very popular because of the form factor and just that smaller configuration, has become popular. So it got an upgrade to the A15 Bionic chip, has 5G. So on the inside, it's gotten a bit of a boost in terms of performance and a nice update. On the outside, it's still classic iPhone SE. Nothing, again, nothing extraordinary about it. It's kind of just that incremental update, although one could say, you know, I don't recall when the iPhone SE was last updated, but moving to an A15 Bionic chip, which I believe is the same chip in the iPhone 13 and iPhone 13 Pro series, brings it up to date, although the overall design is still the same. It still has the the button, the home button in the front. But for anyone who's looking for, I guess, an entry-level iPhone to make that switch, then that's definitely an option, and you're at least getting newer technology 
versus something that's outdated. So in terms of the first two items, is there anything that you want to you want to mention about those two? Yeah, I mean, also with the SE, it supports 5G now too. So again, just coming up with technolo- the technology that there is today that the other iPhones do have. But, you know, it's the quote-unquote more affordable iPhone. Or for, Again, for those who don't want the larger size because you just want that more, I guess, quote-unquote traditional size phone that's not super large. So, you know, again, like you said, more entry-level but for those who want a phone that's not as large, I think it's pretty comparable in terms of what it can offer now. Right. And the starting price is 429 And again, affordable is subjective. It depends on right. who you are. Right. For someone who looks at the higher end iPhones, when you see they can go up to over $1,000, yes, Double this is price, much right? more affordable. Yeah. But when you say, well, I view affordable as a phone that is $60. Right. Okay, it's not affordable. Yeah. So... Again, it's subjective, but if you're looking at the iPhone ecosystem, this is one of the most affordable in the product line, and it has the newer technology. It may yep. not have the technology and the features and the camera system that you'll find in the iPhone 13 or 13 Pro, but it is current, it works well, and it is affordable for those who understand the iPhone and the Apple ecosystem. All right, so let's move on. M1 Ultra. So I think the big deal in terms of M1 Ultra is really when they were kind of explaining the background to it. And it shows that Apple has, and their engineers have forward thinking because they said that pretty much, we didn't tell you this until now, but they were already working on this, the idea of their Ultra Fusion architecture to be able to, interconnect two M1 Max chips to create M1 Ultra. And what's good about it, because if you understand the background of how a lot of computer systems traditionally work, you would have, you know, back in the day when I would build computers, I remember when you would get a motherboard that had two processor slots and you could install two chips. But the problem is that there are certain issues about having two separate chips working harmoniously together you're going to lose some of that throughput you're going to lose some of that bandwidth you're going to lose some of that seamless functionality and with the way they're describing m1 and this ultra fusion technology with the m1 ultra chip they eliminate or they mitigate those issues so that you have this high performance chip but it's not brand new chip it's using what they already have it's taking two m1 max chips that are powerful already, and then bringing them together or interconnecting them together to give you this new high-performance chip. So I think that was kind of the major takeaway there uh, in terms of what I was hearing. You know, yes, you have all the performance specs and all the details. And again, this is a matter of you getting your hands on a device and being able to take advantage of it. Now, for the average consumer, are you going to notice difference between M1 Ultra M1 Max, M1 Pro, maybe not depending on what you're using it for. But if you're a video editor or you're a graphic designer, you may be able to notice the high performance changes. Right. Do you have anything that you want to add on that? No, I think that was the major takeaway coming out from it. Obviously, you know, with them introducing the Mac, that was the core piece to it, right, about the new processor. And I think that's what everyone really cares about. Well, what's the difference, right? And it's going to be that processor with that ultra fusion technology, like you said, where they're pretty much fusing the two processors together so that they can work better versus having the limitations that there were 
today, like you said, when we used to have dual processors or dual Intel right. processors on the motherboard, it's definitely different. And it's not something that I was even thinking of that they would be doing. But yeah, that was probably the major, like you said, major takeaway coming out from it. Everything else was kind of secondary to it because, again, it's the core of what they are talking about with the Max. Yeah, and I also think that they're really trying to max out M1 because right. there were some rumors about M2 possibly being announced, but it just seems like the, you know, they start with M1, and then it's like, well, we're not going to talk M2. We can, right. you know, we can take M1 further, and how can we do that? Well, we have M1 Pro. But we can take M1 Pro further with M1 Max. And now this year, we can take M1 Max further by making it M1 Ultra. So they're kind of just keeping everything right now, at least during this transitional period, yep. to the M1 class right. chip. Yeah, I, I feel they didn't want to do an M2 because that would overshadow what they were already doing with the M1s on the, right. on the MacBooks, right? You don't want to just say, well, does that mean the Mac, the M2 is much better than all these M1 series? So rather than using a branding of two, which would be... You know, you would see that as the next generation. Well, let's just put, add something else to the M1, call it something else. Then at least you align everything to use this M1 branding. And when they're ready to go to the next level, that's when you'll see M2 come out. Yeah, I think there's going to be most likely some sort of redesign or some more significant change to right. the Mac line when M2 comes out. Right. Rather than just slapping in an M2 and, chip. And I, I think they just want to get everything to that M1 processor now across their line, not just on the Mac, the Macs, the MacBook Pros, and the iPads. They want to get it across everywhere, I think, before they start even talking about M2s. That way, again, you don't overshadow what the M1s represent in their, in their environment. Right. And speaking about the iPad line, that was the next thing, a new fifth-generation iPad Air now with M1. So I'm using right now fourth-generation iPad Air, which is still using the A-class chips. And so M1 brings with it the 12-megapixel ultra-wide camera with center stage, 5G, and a number of new improvements to improve performance. And, I mean, I think that's great in terms of the devices. I think now we start to see that most likely... M1, at least on a lot of the more premium devices, that's what they're going to be doing with, with those devices. They're going to be moving them to the M-Class chip. They'll probably keep the A-Class chip for, like, your iPhones, maybe for the lower-end iPads, and then eventually, you know, it's very possible they'll consolidate. Who knows? At some point, the next-generation iPhone may go to, like, an M1-Class chip. I feel like that's the direction, that. right? I feel... Like, they want to get everything on the M1, like I was saying earlier, before they jump to M2. Then, right. again, you'll make M2s available on the Mac, the MacBook line, then Mac, and then and so forth, right? So once you get everyone on the M, M class, then they can start moving forward. And I think going, you know, moving past that, they'll go to two, three, four, you know, and, and so forth. Right. right. It'll, it'll be a new sequence now with the M class chips, Versus right. the A class because they have to keep evolutionizing all of this to make sure that there's something that stands out with their environment, right? Versus yeah. everyone else. Yeah, definitely. I think part of it will be to see what they do with the next generation iPhone when we get to the fall, whether or not that's going to transition over to 
whether or not they can see a benefit of bringing that to M1 or to keep it at like the A16 chip or something. I feel like it's going to be an M1. That, that's, that's my prediction right now. It's very possible. All right, so let's move on. So prior to the special event, the Apple Mac lineup, pretty much in terms of Intel, what was remaining was the Mac Pro with the Intel chip. They had a version of the Mac Mini with an Intel chip, and they had the 27-inch iMac. Following the announcement, the 27-inch iMac is now gone from the lineup. And in its place, and they didn't really say that it's being replaced by this, but I'm saying in general when you look at how the lineup is now, it really looks like that's what it what was happening because they had phased out the iMac Pro a couple of years ago, and now you've eliminated the 27-inch iMac. You didn't bring an M1-class chip to the 27-inch. You only have a 24-inch iMac. And in its place, you have the new Mac Studio. And with the Mac Studio, you can configure it with either an M1 Max or an M1 Ultra chip. You have the four Thunderbolt 4 ports, 10 gig Ethernet, two USB-A, one HDMI, the headphone jack. And then on the front of it, it varies a little bit depending on the chip. So if you get an M1 Max on a Mac Studio, you get two USB-C ports and an SDXC slot in the front. But if you get a Mac Studio with M1 Ultra, you get two Thunderbolt 4 ports and an SDXC slot. So the reason I'm saying that this kind of feels like they've replaced the 27-inch iMac is the other part of what they announced, which is a new studio display. And Apple has not had a studio display in a while. They did announce those XDR displays a couple of years ago. And the XDRs are, like, very, very expensive. Those are, like, if you're doing very high-end editing and you had the budget for it, you can buy it. Not to say that the new studio displays are cheap either, because they're not. I mean, the new studio displays start at $1,600. But 27-inch display, 5K retina screen. You can configure it with standard or nanotexture glass. It has an A13 Bionic chip in it. 12-megapixel ultra-wide camera with center stage capability, the three-microphone array, high-fidelity, six-speaker sound system with spatial audio. You have three downstream USB-C ports, one upstream Thunderbolt 3 USB-C port with 96 watts of host charging. So you can literally charge a device using your studio display. They give you three options for mounting. You can do the VESA mount adapter if you want to mount it to a wall. Or you have the tilt adjustable stand or the tilt and height adjustable stand. And this is like the little irking thing again is, you know, can you just, why couldn't you just offer a tilt and height adjustable stand as standard? Right. But no, it's like if you get the vase amount adapter or the tilt adjustable stand, it's part of the base price that starts at $15.99. But if you get the tilt and height adjustable stand, then the price goes up. Right. And so Why like, can't that just be all in one type yeah, thing? Just, or just stand, include it as part of the not, package. Why can't exactly. they do that? Sixteen hundred dollars is not cheap for a display. And I understand everything that's in this this display, but even for like you know, for the average consumer who's a high end graphic designer or a video production person, I don't see that they're gonna be throwing around and I didn't mention the pricing on the Mac Studio. Mac Studio starts at fifteen ninety nine. This display starts at fifteen ninety nine. So you're looking at over three thousand dollars just to get your base configuration 
So that's, I mean, that's an enormous amount of money to have to spend. Now, granted, if you're getting like a high-end MacBook Pro, you can easily spend over three grand. But the reality is this is base configuration, $3,000 that you're starting on. And most people, they're going to have to make customizations. They're going to have to make changes. And so it's very easily that you're going to be paying five or $6,000. Again, that's why I say when you compare this, this kind of looks like it's that 27-inch iMac slash 27-inch iMac Pro. I think the 27-inch iMac Pro, though, started at a higher price. I think I want to say it was like $5,000 was the starting price point, whereas the 27-inch iMac was somewhere around like 2000 or 2500 so it falls within that range. So, yes, you're getting a lot in the package, but it's very, very expensive. And when you look at the Mac Studio, it, you know, I think I heard some rumors about a device coming out. I don't remember if they rumored that it would be called the Mac Studio, but that it would look like an Apple TV or it looked like a Mac Mini. And that's what it is. It's like two Mac Minis stacked on top of each other. So that, that's what it is. I mean, it's an elegant design. It's definitely... It kind of is reminiscent of the days of the G4 Cube. Although, you know, I had experience with the G4 Cube and outside of looking nice, that thing had like no power to it. But the Mac Studio definitely has a lot of power. I think it is a, it's a cross between what a high powered average consumer would need versus a pro. So it's that in between line because it's definitely not a Mac Pro level. And I can, you know, I can only imagine what they're going to do with Mac Pro when that moves to Apple Silicon. I mean, if they're going to do that this year and they're not going to go M2, it's going to have something to do with M1 Ultra, definitely. That's kind of like the the precursor to getting to Mac Pro will be an updated Mac Pro, and it's going to take advantage of M1 Ultra. But the Mac Studio is kind of like a step towards that direction of getting you ready to move to the highest end piece of equipment. And that's why I kind of see this as a little bit of reminiscent with the iMac 27-inch versus the iMac Pro 27-inch, how those two fit together. Although I think they are trying to streamline the product line so that they don't have too, too many things that overlay on top of one another. So you have your MacBook Air for people who really they need, you know, you take advantage of M1. But it's for those people who are on the go. You still want that lightweight, small form factor device. Then you have the Mac Pro. And you have 13-inch, 14-inch, and 16-inch based on what your size requirements are, screen real estate that you want, and then the amount of power you want. For people who need to move away from the laptop and need to move to a desktop, you have a Mac Mini option. If you want to be space conscious and you don't want to spend a, money, a lot of money. And then you have the iMac 24-inch. For those who want traditional desktop, but again, you don't want to throw a lot of money into it and you don't need a lot of the high performance. And then you now jump to Mac Studio, which is, okay, much more much more power into it. So you can do like high-end video editing. You can do high-end graphics, but you're not quite at Mac Pro yet, which will probably be now with the Mac Pro. I can only imagine that like big like production studios with a lot of money to throw at it would be Mac Pro. I don't see, even with like experienced graphic designers or video production people, that they're going to be throwing down seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000 unless you can afford it towards the future Mac Pro. Mac Studio may be their cutoff. But I think we had said that before, is you know with Mac Pro 
And that's the the other thing is I don't see a lot of Mac Pros. I mean, working on the agency side for so many years for advertising digital based, you know, we typically kept things in terms of if I was looking at the current product line, it stopped at pretty much like the iMac. And I would say that even for like graphic designers, creatives right now, iMac 24 inch is probably as far as most would need, except if you need the 27 inch screen real estate. If you need the 27 inch screen real estate, it doesn't make a lot of sense, although you could, you could get an iMac 24 inch and add an, ex, an external monitor to get that extra screen real estate. But if you want that all in one, then you, you kind of push yourself to having to go Mac studio. So that's kind of like the direction I could see that happening. But I mean, it gets a little tricky when you have that all in one 27 inch, that was kind of like the perfect one for like small business and small agencies. Now, when you get to an iMac 24 inch, if you have to get that second screen and you need to get like a big 27 inch screen, the you know functionality of having the dual screens may not work as easily depending on like space constraints and like that, especially with a lot of people still working remotely. They might want to get, you know, the bigger, bigger display like the studio display or something comparable and go with something like, like Mac studio. You can get a laptop. And I think if you are, a sole proprietor, if you're a single member LLC, if you're kind of in business for yourself, you might just kind of work off a laptop and get, you know, an affordable monitor to use. But again, you know, these price points get a little tricky in terms of who's going to be able to afford spending the money. Yes, they're high powered. Yes, they can do a lot. But, you know, can you really afford it? That becomes like, well, who are you, who are you specifically targeting now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the pricing point is a big bit to this, right? I mean, they promote a wonderful device, a sleek looking device, but then you start looking at pricing and all your options. And by the time you configure something to what you want, it ends up being pretty expensive. Even like you said, the, was it the, the tilt mount, it does change the price significantly. It's not a $50 change. It's a few hundred dollar change. And you even have an option to change the type of display you get. And that, again, changes in the hundreds by how much that's going to cost. So just two slight edits like that pushes it up by, you know, at least a thousand or a couple of thousand dollars as your base. And you haven't even touched the processor, memory, storage space yet. So you can only imagine right. how that, that props up. But again, to be fair, right? If you're purchasing it and you're future proofing it, then it'll last you a good number of years. Right, so it's really that investment that you're putting in, and I guess if you have an Apple credit card, you could also pay it by monthly payments versus putting it all at one time. So there is an advantage there as well. If you do need to spend that, you can at least break it up into the the payments and still earn some extra money off of that based on their I forget what the percentage is on the right. Apple Card, but at least you'll earn something off of that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see because I know, look, you're always going to have some people who they have the cash to throw down and buy the equipment. I would like to see really in terms of each of these products, you know, especially when you get into like Mac Studio and the future Mac Pro, who exactly now are the individuals who are using it? And in terms of businesses, what sort of businesses are using it and what what are the sizes of these companies? Because when you look at, like for me, coming from small businesses, 
know, something like the Mac Studio would be great to offer like your creative, your production teams. Whether or not you could afford the configurations at those price points becomes questionable when you start to add everything together. Because you know that, you know, first and foremost, you can't, can never ask a creative department, what do you need in terms of, you know, look at the, go to the Apple site and tell me exactly what you want us to buy. You can't do that because what they're going to say is get me the most powerful Mac studio with the, with two studio displays. Heck, give me three studio displays because it can handle three. Max it out. You know, and it's $15,000. It's, it's, look, it's not going to, that's not going to happen. The reality is you have to kind of budget very carefully. And the other thing is you don't want to have to, you know, with small businesses, often what you have to do is you have to buy equipment incrementally. So it's like, we'll buy one now, we'll buy one in a couple months, whatever. We'll spread out the cost. Sure, you can lease equipment and pay over time, but usually you're going to be paying the interest, and it's not going to make a lot of sense to do that. And with this equipment, it's not like you can upgrade it. Everything is built in. So if everything is built in, it's like, well, you're not going to be able to upgrade it for the future. So whatever you get, you're going to have to really throw down the money now. And I think with the Mac Studio, I didn't read any details in terms of upgradability. I'm assuming that it's not going to have that upgradability that like the Mac Pro has. Maybe it does. If it does, different story. But I'm assuming it doesn't. And if that's the case, then you have to have these pre-configured to whatever you want them to be now with the plan for future growth, which means you're not going to be spending $1,600 on a base model. You're probably going to be thinking, well, what are we going to use this for over the next three to five years because we just want to make this one investment. Even like when we buy computers, it's like I'm not just thinking of I'm going to buy the cheapest computer base model available and then not plan for how or what I'm going to use it for two, three, four, five years down the road. I don't want to be buying a new computer every three years. I understand the technology changes, but even as the technology changes, there's always going to be a better device out there. I don't want to buy a new computer every three years and throw down $2,500 based on the configuration. So I don't want to do that. I also don't want to buy the cheapest configuration at $1,300 and have to buy one every year because every year I realized that I didn't plan for the future. And now every year I'm buying one for like $1,200, $1,300. So now I'm spent in three years, $3,000 instead of spending $2,500. So it's kind of planning ahead and figuring that out. Granted, look, the Mac Studio spec-wise it looks like a very good, strong performing device. I think if you have the use case for it, it's going to make sense. Don't buy simply on impulse, you know, buy the latest and greatest. Don't do that. Apple has a very large line of products with Apple Silicon now. So you really have to kind of do your comparison, identify exactly what you are looking for and what you need, and then buy a device with the configuration that best suits your specific use case while planning for the future. So assume that you want to use it for a minimum of three years, but probably your four, your five, and beyond. Yes, can you use a computer for 10 years? Absolutely. But the fact is, it's not going to be supported for 10 years. The operating system will probably stop being updated. You're going to start to see performance issues. If you're, Look, if you're just using it to surf the web, you could probably go with a base configuration MacBook Air, a Mac Mini, perfectly fine but if you're going to be doing anything more than that then you again want to plan ahead so that whatever you invest in you put the money down now to get something better that will last you that three to five years 
but don't overspend either. You don't have to throw big bucks down. And just because, oh, you know, let's say later this year they announce a new Mac Pro with M1 Ultra that's fast and furious and so on and so forth, but it's going to start at $7,000. You don't have to throw $7,000 to get that in order to future-proof your investment. If you need something that's more like a MacBook Pro or a 24-inch iMac, and you can configure it so that you can future-proof it to work in your 4 and 5, that's enough. That's fine. And then 4 or 5 years down the line, you make a change. If you have to make a change before then, guess what? This device that you have now can possibly be repurposed. Maybe you have a kid who is going to need a computer that is better than what they have now, but not the latest and greatest. That might be an option. You could donate it. You could give it to a friend. There are lots of different options. So it's something to consider whenever you buy equipment, especially on the Apple side, because a lot of this, there's always going to be something great coming out, something newer, something better, something faster, something that performs even better than the last generation. But the reality is don't buy an impulse because it looks all all great, but I think over the last couple of years, just watching the events, they have innovation, they have these new things coming out. Nothing is like a super wow necessarily, like from this event, but at the same time, it's like, when you start looking at it, I'm always asking myself, okay, what? how much is this going to cost? That's like the, the bottom line. Just tell me how much is this going to cost? Because yes, you're selling all these great things, but the bottom line, just tell me what the number is. And granted, when you look at Mac Studio, $1,600 is not ridiculously expensive, but it becomes quite expensive if, let's say, you want to stay in the Apple ecosystem and you need to get the studio display to go with it. Then $3,000 may be a little bit out there. And so you have to kind of look at back at it and say, well, do I really need this Mac Studio or is there something else in the Mac line that even if I want to spend the same $3,000, is going to suit me better than the Mac Studio? Yep, absolutely. And I think the keyword that they have on their website is from and then the price, right? Or they usually say starting at this price. And yeah. that's where it is, right? It starts at this price. Yeah, it may seem like a great price, but again, you're getting the lowest specs at that point. Then once you start looking at what you want, everything just starts adding up. Buying warranty, you got to remember that. Tax on that as well. So even when you see that final price on the card, there's still those added pieces there that you have to account for that's going to push that number even further up. Yeah, exactly. All right, so the last thing that they announced was there will be a Magic Keyboard with Touch ID, Magic Trackpad, and Magic Mouse that are now available in the silver and black color option to complement your Mac Studio. And I remember back when, you know, all their keyboards and mice were white, and people would say, you know, well, why, why isn't there like a, a gray or a black option? And then when the 27-inch iMac came out, that came with, I think it was, that was a space gray. And it shipped with like a gray keyboard and, and mouse. And then finally they made it available. So now I think they've kind of realized that people want like the matching accessories to complement their devices. So there is a matching accessory now to complement those devices because, you know, your Mac Studio is not going to include anything. It's kind of like the Mac Mini. You're just buying the device. So keep that in mind that you're going to have to buy your keyboard and your mouse to go with that if you're planning on going with the, the Mac Studio. Yeah, I mean, the color schemes have been a big debate for the longest time, even with, with the original iPhones, where I said, said to you, I don't, I don't want a white iPhone because it gets dirty really fast. I want the black iPhone or, you well, know. It, yeah, it, it wasn't even just that, that time, either. It, just, it was the fact that 
all these great colors on the backside yep. don't complement well with the white front. Right. I exactly. always found that no matter what color you have on the back of your device, the black border on the front, the bezel, works best. It complements all that. The white just, it really stands out, but it just never seemed to, at least for me, it never worked for me. So literally, you could choose whatever color you want on the back, but the front had to have that kind of dark bezel. But even now, when you take like iPhone 12 Pro Max, which I have, the bezels are a lot thinner. But again, if it was a white bezel, it would just look really weird. Right, exactly. I just, I don't think it would, it would work well for me. So I think they've kind of adjusted the, the color schemes to work in a way that is based on feedback from, from customers. Right, but what's always funny with the iPhone is, you know, you, you'll get an iPhone, nice back color, and then you just buy a case and you just cover it, which just defeats the whole purpose of well, getting... Well, yeah, that, that's the other thing because you have to protect your color. Phone. Yeah, I mean, I have the Spigen case and I have, I forgot what the, if this was Graphite or whatever they call it on the iPhone 12 Pro Max. I mean, outside of the little Apple logo on the back, that's the only thing you can tell what color it is. You don't know what it is. This, I could have had... You know, if I bought an iPhone 13 Pro Max Alpine Green, you wouldn't be able to tell unless I showed you the back because we have the case to protect it. Although I have seen people who they don't have cases on their phones. They just carry it in their hand. Oh, but yeah, absolutely. Just, there are yeah, a lot. I just or you get a clear case, that. but a lot of the clear cases, they scratch up anyway, and you'll see the scratching on there. So it takes away from the, the nice look of it. But again, at the end of the day, you have to think about that. Yeah, definitely. All right, is there anything that you want to touch on that we did not cover in this episode. I think we got it all. All right. So thank you for listening to the David Ron Show podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Mixcloud, and Verbal. And just to note, Apple Podcasts still does not have the right cover art. But it's not just us. It's other podcasts. For whatever reason, they can't fix this problem. Apple, please fix it. You can also follow us on Instagram at the David Ron Show. Until next time, we'll talk to you then. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everyone.